Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Dr. Keith Jagger, University Chaplain at John Brown University. Prior to coming to JBU, Keith served in pastoral ministry in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Keith earned his doctoral degree in New Testament at St. Andrews in Scotland. It's great to see you guys today. Welcome this morning to chapel. And a special welcome to our uh, special guests that we have today. Um, our our um, master builders friends who are special guests of the university. Uh, and um, who, who really, some of them are alumni. Uh, others of our, them are, are special, special friends. And so we're really welcoming you here today. Glad that you're here. I look forward to speaking more with you guys at lunch today. Uh, well, we are at the end of the semester. And at the end of the story of the Exodus generation, we've followed these men, these women, these children, their livestock, and all that they're carrying all the way from Egypt, out of Egypt, towards the promised land, which symbolizes their dreams, their hopes uh, of a free life, and passing on inheritance to next generation. We're now in the book of Deuteronomy, a book that brings together three things. A number of Moses' final sermons, his final speeches to Israel, uh, one of his psalms, and uh, an account of his death and burial. When Moses died, it was truly the end of an era. If you read uh, on in the Bible, but you realize that while Moses passes and that generation passes, their spiritual legacy endures and uh, the memory of them carried on from their children to their grandchildren. Moses was the most well-known Jewish man of the ancient era, even up to Jesus, Jesus' time. In Greece, in Rome, everyone knew Moses. Many of our Psalms and New Testament books refer to Moses and um, the people he led. And Jesus, if you remember, quotes Deuteronomy when he is fighting off the temptations of the enemy in the desert. Don't put the Lord, your God, to the test. And man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God and worship God alone. All of these quotes from Deuteronomy in this temptation by a false god. So this ancient book is for anyone who's wanting to know how to love God with their whole life and find the unusual freedom that the gospel brings. Even more than that, this book is for any who feel themselves wandering in uncertain times, looking to keep hold of the essential truths of God. Now, as we get into these scriptures today with these themes close at hand, I know that we're tired. And the last thing we really need right now is more information to digest. I think I'm right about that. However, I'm going to hold, not going to hold back today, but give you a true conclusion to our semester's focus on these Old Testament books. I hope, therefore, that this message, if anything, in the short term, is an invitation for you to cling on to Jesus to cling to him, to cling to his wounds, to cling to his love for you when you are shouldering the rest of your burdens and responsibilities for the rest of the semester. But this message today is also an invitation for us all to look ahead to the summer. Um, summer in a university setting is a time to take stock, to be honest with ourselves and with each other about any sinful patterns that we have let 
get hold of us. There's no better time to take stock. I mean, we, there's no better time than to know that, we're, there, that there's more to life, that we're, we're made for more than life than when we're stressed and, and really surviving. But summertime is the time where we get some focus. Maybe you're launching into a job and, and, and graduating. Maybe this next year can be a kind of a Sabbath for you like summer is for those who are returning to campus next semester. It's a way for us to, m- to maybe notice how our life is spinning out of control. And uh, as Moses will tell his people, they have time yet in their life to choose life over the persistent temptations to live into a culture of death. And we too have time in our life left to choose life and choose ways of life rather than ways of death. So let's jump in and check things out today. Today we're opening up at Deuteronomy chapter 12 where Moses says to his people, be careful to obey all these words that I command to you so that it may go well with you and your children after you forever because you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Now Moses is 120 years old at this point and here's what he chooses really to be some of his last words of wisdom. Involve your life in a persistent posture of obedience. A persistent posture of obedience. This is the word that we translate into obedience is from the Latin obedere, which means to pay attention. Take heed, that is, not take your eye off the road. Stay alert to the dangers of the highway and read God's roadmap. But it's not just any kind of obedience that Moses says after. He says uh, to have a careful obedience. That is, on the highway to the promised land, as we drive in, one does not go on autopilot. There are tricks and turns every which direction, false opportunities posing as oases. Entering into the promised land is a full-time endeavor, and there are real consequences at stake, including a host of false gods, demons, posing as gods in the Canaanite culture, preparing to woo Israel into their devices. To obey is to pay attention and to recognize that they are not entering a neutral space, but into a culture that's filled with movements and ideas and temptations that will be after their hearts at every turn. To obey in this context is to be alert to the agendas of the world and to keep our eyes fixed on the ways of God. Right now, Marvel has a a new Disney Plus show running called Moon Knight. Anybody watching Moon Knight? Yeah, it's pretty good. I don't think I'll be spoiling anything to describe the premise of the show. The main character is Mark Spector, an indentured servant of sorts to the Egyptian moon god Khonshu. Uh, Spector's alter ego, Stephen Grant, encounters Arthur Harrow, a servant of another Egyptian god or a goddess of retribution. It's a story really of two pagan gods warring about their ideas of justice. But beyond helping us get into the ancient world, and this show really does help us in some ways get into the ancient world of of Egypt, um, Israel would have known Khonshu. The first episode of Moon Knight plays with this powerful themes of scales in the balance. The ever-shifting possibilities that although we intend to be good, we can be twisted and choose the ways of evil in the world. Life and death is within each of our hands to choose from. 
If we aren't diligent, we'll wake up some morning finding ourselves indentured to some new form of idolatry in need once again of God's rescue, which is basic, the basic theme of Israel's story to come for hundreds of years. So take heed, be very careful, says Moses. Why? He tells us why. When the Lord your God has cut off before you the nations whom you are about to enter to possess them, when you have possessed them and live in the land, take care that you are not ensnared into imitating them after they have been destroyed before you. Do not inquire concerning their gods, saying, how did these nations worship their gods? I also want to do the same. You must not do the same for the Lord your God, because every abhorrent thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They would even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to the gods. You must diligently observe everything that I command you. Do not add anything to it or take anything from it. So apparently the, the temptations of the followers of the Canaanite gods resulted in sacrificing their children, presumably in exchange of some sort, exchange for a, 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 some knowledge or special favor from the gods, uh, exchanging what was precious to them their little ones, for their own good standing with the gods of this land. This was a known practice in Canaan. Remember Abraham, got, in Canaan, God tested Abraham not, with, not just to see if he would be more devoted uh, to God than, his, than devoted to his son. He was pushing against this ancient Near Eastern culture that he abhorred. God, as Deuteronomy says, did not think of child sacrifice. Fast forward to chapter 18, and Moses says it again. No one shall be found among you who makes a son or daughter pass through the fire, or who practices divination, or is a soothsayer, or one who casts spells, or who, con who consults ghosts or spirits, or who seeks oracles from the dead. I mean, all of these were ancient practices of manipulation to control the gods. We know that Pharaoh was, uh, found children easily dispensable um, to, to him. And apparently the Canaanites were willing to do something similar to their own offspring. And this, I think, is the first perennial sign that there's an insidious idol in the house. Child sacrifice. It's easy to look at other cultures or people not like us and point our fingers in this direction to see how they hand over their children to broken projects and devotions. But I think the call to diligent obedience, to paying attention carefully, is a keen watchfulness to see how this practice arises in our own subculture. We can see the impulse to hand our children over to the fires of adults' devotions in so many ways. But today I want to focus quickly on how our culture wants children to lose their childhood too quickly. We know that sports are a really good endeavor in their own rights, but you know that something shifts when the sports become less about children and their growth and more about the parent, living their hopes through the dreams of their children or their successes or pushing their children excessively or almost single-heartedly to get a D1 scholarship. I mean, there's nothing wrong with D1 scholarships if that's what the child chooses. Um, but you, you, you recognize when you live under that kind of pressure that, that the energy is less moving from parent to child and more 
the children are having to push their energy up to take care of their parents. You see the same with academics or the same kind of pressure that parents put on their children to form romantic relationships too early. If you've ever lived through that way of life, you know that it's not a way of life, but there's something inside you slowly dying. You see this, uh, sadly, my 15-year-old my daughter has described this. Uh, there's at some point children go from playing in school at recess to an adventuring with, with eyes of wonder to dating. And it just sort of happens overnight and phones become a big part of it. And there's this shift that happens and it's sad. And I don't think anyone really wants this for our children who are really too young for this kind of way of life, but it happens. And there are cultural forces here and spiritual forces. When I was, I, mean, I, was, I was thinking through this message, like when, was I, when did I really start losing that like childhood wonder for the first time. And I remember it happened because of this. I was not dating a girl, but we were close friends. We went to every high school dance together. We played Nintendo together. We were just really good friends. And then I started having eyes for someone who, um, who had really no interest in play. And I remember this, this friend who, um, who worked at a putt-putt golf place. And I'd go get my free putt-putt. And we'd, we'd, we'd go, and I remember one day, I went and even asked her, what a, what a doofus I was. Hey, is it okay if I started dating this girl? I was like, oh, come on, Keith. Um, and I remember that next year, I've told you a little bit about it in previous sermons about how the rejection I faced and when, when that girl rightly b- broke up with me, um, the rejection I faced and how heartbroken I was and how aware of my relational brokenness I, I was and, and how that was a catalyst that summer um, before my senior year in high school for, for the Lord to capture my full heart. Um, but I remember and thank God that it happened, but I remember I was quickly on my way to losing my awe and wonder. And, and in the Lord, I, I got that back all the way through college. And I think I'm in a, a phase of life right now, we go through phases where I've lost that a little bit again. And you know the, the kind of uh, metric I'm using? Like, am I really enjoying playing with my children? Or is it a chore? You see, there's something insidious about the false gods of this world that cause us to lose our childhood in wonder. We may not give our children over to the gods in this culture in the same kind of physical death way, but let's not kid ourselves. There are gods in our culture who are very happy to burn our kids. And this is not the way of life, it's the way of death. And Israel would flirt with this devotion to Baal, which is the god of Canaan. And there's this really interesting place in the book of Hosea where Israel is, or God is describing metaphorically what Israel has done going after the gods of Canaan. God was fed up with their false worship and the ongoing slavery of the Israelite people. And the prophet Hosea helps Israel see her sins in this living parable. Israel is... is in the metaphor of an unfaithful spouse. And here's what the Lord says about this. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, when she offered incense to them and decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, says the Lord. Therefore, I will now persuade her and bring her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Israel, this personified spouse, 
who though married is decking herself out in jewelry um, to seek new lovers in this perpetual pursuit of desire. And it's not for no reason, I think, that the prophets depict Israel in this fashion with bracelets on the wrist. You know, our wrists are some of the most tender and vulnerable parts of the human body. They're, 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 if you grab onto someone's wrists, you know that it's a serious statement. And I also think that it's no accident that the, the Israel was using their wrists to adorn with gold to catch the eye of a suitor. Uh, that these bracelets when used to court idolatry actually in Israel's case turned into handcuffs. Ways that the search after desire turns them back into slaves of one false god after another. And so God's main solution is to return Israel to the wilderness where God may capture her attention with words of kindness and tender persuasion. I've heard it said that we are actually in our culture entering into something like a new exodus or a new exile. The kind of internal reserves God's people needed to make it all the way from Egypt to the promised land are the kinds of internal reserves we're gonna need. It's a dual and harsh experience which requires perseverance where we're confronted by the sins of our people but also it's a place of tender return to God where we're stripped of the things which we were attached to and as we're stripped of our attachments, we actually return to freedom. It's where our devotion to false gods in this land will require us to remember God once again. The wilderness of Exodus is walking out of the situations that put our children in general slavery and embracing the severe mercies of God who is always afresh leading us into promised land where we can make a better life for our children guarding them from the womb to their full launching as adults. A contemporary exodus is no doubt underway, I think, as we're embracing the truth that God is always orchestrating a heaven moment in culture where heaven comes to earth and he speaks tenderly to his people in desert places and provides for his people with godly leadership. And this last part is where I wanna start landing our ship today. Right after Moses warns the Israelites about the Baal's practice of child sacrifice and divination, there comes this major promise. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them everything I command. Moses is gonna leave them soon, but God's gonna replace Moses with not just any leader, but with a Moses-like leader. And this is so key because if you read to the end of Deuteronomy, you see that that leader hasn't come in many generations. This, this forward-looking moment in Deuteronomy where it's not Joshua, not the judges, not even David, who is counted as the second Moses. And so by the, time they're look, by the time Jesus is around, they're looking for someone who is like Moses, someone who speaks to God as one who speaks to a friend, who brings God's word to them, who performs tremendous miracles, who suffers with them and stood in the way of their destruction. This second Moses who would also be profoundly wise and discerning and humble beyond comparison. That's why Peter in his first sermon after the resurrection goes straight for this promise as he, as he proclaimed. And now friends, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. 
In this way, God fulfilled what he foretold through the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing from come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through the prophets. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you from your own people a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So they were anticipating someone to come like this. Now, if you've been tracking along throughout the semester, you've noticed that I've been saying two things. The first thing is that if we want to understand what sin is, that the books of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they give us our first major metaphor for what sin is, and that is it's slavery. That sin is like a slavery of us doing things that we don't want to do and not doing the things that we want to do. But that not, God is not just in the business of freeing his people from slavery, but freeing people from the effects of slavery, the deep down parts of enslavement in our personhood. And if the, the second thing I'm, I'm, I've been telling you is that if slavery is the best metaphor to contend with the sin in our lives, understanding it, come, becoming free from it, the best metaphor for worship and why we do worship is freedom. Worship Praise, prayers, music, confession, prayers of the world. As we lean into these practices, corporate embodied worship, if anything, is an ongoing experience of reaching out to touch the Lord and receiving his freedom in return. And so this summer, this summer, I wonder what it could be for all of us. Can it be a time to choose life? I know there's stress and fatigue right now in this moment. But it's in these moments where we truly know that we're made for something more. Can we locate this summer the idols that have loved to play with us? Maybe we'll take up the book of Deuteronomy for a read. Can we turn to the Lord and ask him to crush those idols for, in a final way? For us to say no to them with finality. This summer I would invite you to find a place of worship. Find a place of worship on a regular basis, and I'm not sure um, what that might look like in your life, but find a place of worship where you can keep up the practice of ongoing freedom from sin. Jesus came and told us that we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Maybe this summer, rather than getting caught up in one form of slavery after another, maybe this is the summer where you choose to feast on the word of God where the word of God becomes your food that you feed on every morning and as you do so, you feel your light coming into your eyes and freedom to your soul. Maybe this is the summer for repentance. I've met a few of you who've told me this story. I got caught up in so many terrible things in my early years, my later years of high school, my early years of college, and I was on a terrible path of destruction until I told it all to my parents. 
I just came clean. Now, this may not be for everyone. I'm not promising this is the same thing. But both of those testimonies have resulted in this conclusion. My parents were more tender and more compassionate than I could have ever realized. And when I told them everything that I had done in the back rooms of their house and often college, great freedom washed over me and I, I regained my childlike wonder again. Maybe if, if, you're, if, you, if you take a, a chance on your parents, you might find that same result. Oftentimes we put Moses in opposition to Jesus, but really Mo- Jesus stands on Moses' shoulders. There was no better leader than Jesus. There was, actually there's no better uh, leader before Jesus than Moses. Um, but Jesus proves more worthy over and over again. They needed, in Moses, they had a leader who uh, mediated the word of God to them. But God, in sending the second prophet, condensed the word and brought the word into reality, into flesh itself. God's very mind and heart. In Moses, they found someone who would guide them to the promised land along the way. But in Jesus, God sent the way itself, the very way to life itself. And in Moses, they had someone who would suffer for them. Moses gave his life up to lead these people to the promised land. He gave his idyllic life in the countrysides of Midian with his, his sheep and his children and his wife. He gave that all up to bring his people into the promised land. But when the Israelites took off their jewelry at Mount Horeb and made it into a golden calf a few weeks out of slavery, Moses took the calf and burned it up into ash. Moses dumped the water supply of that ash or ash into their water supply and forced them to drink it. Jesus took one look at the way the world was using their wrists and their jewelry to court idols. And to each of his two wrists, he took nails of iron. To match the circlets that we were putting around our forearms, he took on circlets of his own so that we might repent and seasons of refreshing might come upon us. Moses was a good leader who sacrificed his life for his people. But Jesus took the greater sacrifice and through his wounds finally broke the power of sin and death that we might finally be freed at the deepest levels of our personhood. A selfless death to break the power that Satan held over us. Really so that we might have the freedom to choose life. What if this summer we took the opportunity to set down our idols a final time and to cling on to the nail wounds of our Savior, what kind of freedom might wash over us? And as many of us return, what might the Lord have in store for us as we continue to worship together? Guys, it's been an absolute honor to be with you this year on this, on this platform. Um, and I can't wait to celebrate the next few weeks with you. And I look forward to your return. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.